Chapter Thirteen of The Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Thirteen, The Inwardness of True Religion, Matthew Chapter Six, Verses One to Eighteen. In the former paragraph of this wonderful sermon, verses seventeen to forty-eight, our Lord began by laying down a general principle verse 17, and then proceeded to illustrate it by five particular instances. First, he announced that his attitude towards the Mosaic institutions was not one of destruction, but of fulfillment, and then he showed that the love which he had brought to earth would realize all that Moses asked, and more. The structure of the present paragraph is precisely similar, as appears from a study of the revised version, which substitutes for alms, verse 1, authorized version, the word righteousness, so that the first verse is a general heading for all that follows. First, we have the general proposition that righteousness should not be done for the sake of display, and then we have that principle added to alms, prayer, and fasting, the three departments into which the Jews divided their religious life. That word, take heed, is very searching. We are all liable to the temptation to put more and better goods in the window than we have anywhere else in the shop, and to show fairer samples than we can supply in bulk. Three times over in these paragraphs the Lord speaks of the hypocrites, verses 2, 5, and 16, and the hypocrite, as the Greek word intimates, is a stage actor. We are all tempted to perform our religious duties for the show of them before others, and to appear in public arrayed in garments that we do not wear day by day. Our Lord called this spirit the leaven of the Pharisee, referring without doubt to the slight and subtle beginnings of unreality and its rapid growth, filling the heart with fermentation and decay. Once you begin to think that you must keep up appearances as a religious man and endeavor to do so, once you listen, as Simon stylites, to the murmur of applause which greets you as above the average, once you assume the robes of purity and piety to attract the gaze of your fellows, you have admitted a principle into your heart, which not only will rob you of your reward in heaven, but will ultimately eat out all the purity and loveliness of your religious life. We are all tempted to outwardness in religion. Some, of course, seek to acquire a reputation for piety to serve as a cloak for their nefarious purposes. They weave with assiduous care a rich vestment of alms, prayers, and self-privations to hide their unhallowed and self-indulgent lives. Such people are, of course, mortified when any of their religious acts do not come to the front and secure notice, and when they have built up for themselves a great reputation by their charitable deeds, they devour widows' houses and take a mean advantage of their wards. Judas was one of these people. He had built up so great a reputation that none of his fellow disciples guessed that he was about to do the deed of treachery. Beneath the cover of his reputation he was able to filch the contents of the bag. There are others, again, who, with sincere and transparent motives, begin to love and serve God for himself, but as the days have passed they discover that they are regarded as saints, and the sense of being held in reverence by their fellows as unkoguid fascinates them. They become as proud of their grace as others of their accomplishments or social position. 
they realize that they must maintain their reputation at all costs. Of course, the best way to maintain and increase such a reputation is to cease to think about it, and live only for the Lord Jesus. But directly we fail to do this, and occupy ourselves with our reputation and the long shadow it casts on the lawn, we are tempted to do things, not because God asks them of us, but to resuscitate our waning credit. Our native character is getting a little threadbare, and instead of cleaving closer to God, we put a patch on the elbow or knee, by a generous gift, or a call to prayer, or the assumption in tone and manner of some special sanctity. 1. As to alms. The Jews were trained from their earliest days to be merciful and charitable. The law of Moses continually inculcated remembrance of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Liberality to the poor was reckoned as part of religious duty towards God. The prophets never forgot to urge the people to deal bread to the hungry, to bring the outcast home, and to cover the naked. A row of alms-boxes stood in the temple courts to receive the offerings of worshippers, and at every Sabbath morning service in the synagogues appointed officers collected money for the poor of the town, which was distributed the same afternoon. But in our Lord's time men gave their money to secure merit with God and admiration from men. They bestowed their charity at the doors of the synagogues, where beggars congregated and passers-by could see, or distributed it as they came along the streets. Mrs. Judson, in her account of the first Burman convert, says, A few days ago I was reading with him the Sermon on the Mount. He was deeply impressed and unusually solemn. These words, said he, take hold of my very heart. They make me tremble. Here God commands us to do everything in secret, and not to be seen of men. How unlike our religion this is! When Burmans make offerings at the pagodas, they make a great noise with trumpets and musical instruments, that others may see how good they are. But this religion makes the mind fear God. Probably what has been said of Jews and Burmans is true of us all. It is apt to make a considerable difference to our gift, whether the open plate is handed to us and our coin lies open to all eyes, or whether the offering be gathered in a bag. 2. As to prayer. Our Lord, of course, is referring not to social, but private prayer. For the greater part of the day the doors of the synagogues stood open, as the doors of mosques or Roman Catholic churches do in foreign countries, and the Pharisees, at the three hours of prayer observed by all pious Jews, were not content with kneeling in the privacy of their own homes, but deliberately left their homes with the avowed intention and purpose of being seen in the place of public prayer. They took care, also, to be frequently overtaken in the streets, at the hour of prayer, that they might go through their tedious liturgies within view of all passers-by. Amongst ourselves the tendency is certainly to conceal, rather than parade, our private prayers, and yet there is a subtle temptation to be more reverent in our demeanor, more careful in saying our prayers and reading our Bibles, when we are in the company of religious people, than when we are alone. 3. As to fasting. There were several fast days in the Jewish year, in addition to the great day of atonement, when the people were called upon to afflict their souls by public fasting. Yet this exercise did not always involve entire abstinence, but often consisted only in the sacrifice of a single meal. The Pharisees and others, however, gave evidence of their exceptional piety by exceptional austerities, and took care to let it be known that they were fasting, 
by their gloomy countenances and squalid dress. Our temptation is certainly not in the direction of fasting too much, but of never checking the indulgence of appetite in any degree or on any occasion. Probably we should be much healthier and stronger if now and again we were to reduce our meals and rest the organs of nutrition. But our temptation comes in another way. We affect a depression, a melancholy, a concern for our country, the state of our churches, the unorthodoxy of certain ministers, or a self-depreciation as miserable sinners, which we do not really feel. It gives us a certain character amongst our fellows, but it is hypocrisy in the sight of God. There are those among us who never shed real tears of heartbroken grief before God for the state of things which they affect to deplore, but who pose among us as Jeremiah's. There are others who never catch a glimpse of real and pure fellowship with God or of themselves, but they rush with it into print or speech, and whilst they are passing through such experiences they congratulate themselves that now, at length, they have something worth narrating in the experience meeting or the religious press. This outwardness of religion is most injurious to us all. Plants subjected to sunlight by day and the electric light by night soon fade. What is the cure for it? The cure for outwardness in religion is the cultivation of a filial spirit. Our Lord lived the filial life to its perfection and shows us what it is. Notice how all his thoughts seem to run up into one absorbing central thought of the Father, which is in heaven. He is thy Father. His relationship to each soul is personal. He is in secret, and is thy Father which seeth in secret, and he waits to reward openly. There is no need of vain repetitions with him, because he knows what we have need of. All prayer is to be directed to him. It is he who forgives sins. It is he who clothes and feeds ravens, lilies, and his children. From beginning to end, this chapter is full of the Father, who was the one spectator and audience before whom our Lord lived his earthly life. Not only did our Lord paint the blessedness of that filial life, but he came to give it to us all. This is what we are called to know and he has the power to make it ours. Let us ask him to do this great thing for us here and now. To them who receive him he gives the privilege of becoming sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And because we are sons, God sends the spirit of his Son into our hearts. Then the father finds the child, and the child finds the father, and such community and closeness of intimacy ensue from this, finding that the father's smile and good pleasure become all the reward that the child cares for. Oh, let us never be content until, in our inner experience, God our Father becomes all in all. Then we shall never think of doing our righteousness before men. We shall be good not to win the approval of our conscience, not because we are inspired by an abstract love of virtue, as climbers may be ambitious to climb some hitherto inaccessible peak, not even out of regard for the welfare of others, but because we desire, above all things, to give pleasure to the Father who is in secret. Religion will thus become a sacred, inward secret. We shall have boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus, and shall dwell in the secret place of the Most High.
even when no earthly temple invites us, we shall enter the temple of our own heart, and find God waiting there, in those hidden depths which lie below consciousness. There we shall worship Him, who is a spirit, in spirit and in truth. To the Christian, it has been truly said, so far as any influence on his moral condition is concerned, privacy and publicity are words without meaning. He acts before men as he does alone, and acts alone as he does before men, for he is never alone from that one spectator who sees in secret and whom he seeks to please. One presence fills, possesses, dominates him. Do you know what this is? Since I have been forbidden to use my eyes for reading in a railway train, I have learnt some wonderful lessons in this direction. Sitting quietly in the carriage, I have sought to unite myself with God, not asking Him to help me, but asking if I may help Him, not seeking His sanction on my schemes, but seeking that I may enter into His redemptive purpose for those whom I love, for His church and the poor, hungry, needy world. It has been a fruitful experience, and I see how it is possible so to cultivate the sense of the presence of God, and the endeavor to know what is passing in His heart and thought, that one's absorbing impression tends to be of Him, and His will, and His good pleasure. We must cultivate this openness of heart towards God. There must be no lie in our life, no lack of transparency or sincerity, no concealment or withholding. All the secrets of heart and life must be naked and bare before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. We must watch against any attempt to seem more and better than we are. We must guard our life in secret as our most sacred jewel. And before we give, or pray, or fast, there must be the quiet gathering of the soul up before God, the silencing of every voice, the screening of all footlights and sidelights, the descent into those deepest depths which no eagle's eye has seen. Thus God's smile will become the supreme object of our endeavor, as we admonish ourselves, saying, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. The manifestation of this inward fellowship will be instantly and abundantly manifest. 1 we shall realize the brotherhood of the filial life. When we are near God, we shall begin to be occupied with the condition of His children, our brothers and sisters. We shall look upon all our possessions as given us by Him in trust for them. We shall ask what He would have us expend on His behalf. Almsgiving will at once become a sacred thing, into which the stranger may not intrude. It will be entirely a matter between the father and his child. Even the left hand will not know what the right hand gives. Christian charity is not alms in the usual acceptation of the term, but devoted service to the Father. Indeed, Christ belittles the alms, and thinks only of the Father's glory and pleasure. Alas, that the Christian church has reversed this, magnifying the alms and not stopping to inquire the motive. What has been the result? Millions have been given— but the miseries of the world are no less. We have pauperized and demoralized those whom, with the best intentions, we meant to help. Before our alms can really help men, we must get on our Lord's level. The alms must be fed from love to God, 
as an inland lake is fed from some secret burn which pours into it waters from mountains far away. 2. We shall become identified with the Father's purposes. Our hearts are deeply wrought upon as we continue this blissful fellowship, until they pour themselves out in prayer. Ye people, pour out your heart before Him. But we no longer pray for our way or plans. Instead of this we say, Thou art holy and precious to me. I want to see thee revered and loved. I desire that others shall see what I see. I find thy will, my heaven, and long to see all resistance and indifference brought to an end. Then daily bread, forgiveness, and deliverance from temptation become so many means to the one common purpose and goal of our choice. The soul that gets really quiet before God, realizing that he is in secret, is compelled to pray thus, you might as well stop the tide from flowing, birds from song, and children from laughter, as stop that soul from prayer. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. 3. We shall be full of joy. We may in our heart of hearts be laying aside this and the other weight, knowing that there is no merit in it, our only desire being to lessen the influence of the flesh that we may promote the vigilance and clear vision of the Spirit. It is entirely a matter between God and us, of which we breathe no word to others, and when we meet our fellow men, they will see a gladness in our face, and hear a ringing joy note in our voice, that greatly commend the gospel of our Lord. Is there enough of this anointed head, and the face from which all marks of tears have been removed, in our modern Christian life? How often we make no effort to be happy or to make the best of things. We have had a bad night, and have no scruple about imposing our miseries on a whole breakfast tableful. We have a great anxiety gnawing at our heart, and we affect the appearance of bearing a heavy burden. I suppose there is in all of us a longing to be the object of our friend's solicitude, and there are times when we may freely unburden ourselves to get advice and sympathy but we have no right to add unduly to the sorrows and anxieties of others, or to the travail of the world. The life which is hid with Christ in God is a very radiant one, because it hands over all its burdens and anxieties to the Father in secret, and leaves them with Him. Thus it is, at leisure from itself, to enter into the anxieties of others. What the future rewards may be of that inner life I do not care to speculate, and what the present rewards are, words fail to tell. The reward of the hypocrite is the gaping wonder of spectators who smile, criticize, and forget. The reward of the soul that lives with God in secret consists not in thrones or crowns of gold, but in a growing sense of nearness, of affinity, and of mutual understanding, which issue also in a growing likeness, though the saint wists not that his face shines. End of chapter 13